Uh, good morning. My name is Andrew Shohet. I'm a senior vice president at uh, DNB, focused on uh, leading our coverage of shipping and offshore names uh, in North America. Um, I want to say thanks to, to Nicholas and the Capital Inc. Uh, team for organizing such a nice event. I'm pretty excited about this panel. I think the, the Jones Act is obviously a, a pretty crucial uh, fundamental law of the American maritime industry. Um, and certainly our national security, especially now. I think um, it requires vessels transporting merchandise between the two points, between two points in the U.S. Uh, to be documented under the laws of the U.S., owned by U.S. citizens, and built in the U.S. Um, pleased to be joined by our panels, panelists. I'm gonna pass it over to you guys. I think you can introduce yourselves a little bit better than me. Good morning, my name is Sam Norton. Uh, I'm the president and CEO of Overseas Shipholding Group. Uh, we're a Tampa-based uh, tanker and articulated tug barge operating company, uh, mostly operating in the Jones Act, but we do have ships that trade internationally under the Tanker Security Program, which is a transportation and MARAD-sponsored uh, program for uh, U.S. flag vessels that trade and compete in the international market. Good morning. I'm John Hallmark. I'm the Executive Vice President of Commercial and Strategy for Kirby Marine Transportation Group. We operate uh, both an inland fleet and a coastwise fleet in the Jones Act. Uh, Deepak Arora, I'm the Chief Strategy Officer for Crowley. Uh, we are privately held uh, U.S.-owned operated uh, Jones Act fleet of tankers and uh, other vessels. Uh, so uh, based out of Jacksonville, uh, headquartered there. Uh, close to about 170 vessels uh, that we operate, uh, more uh, both domestically and globally. Uh, so, Good morning, everyone. My name is Keegan Plaskin. I'm the ABS Business Development Director and Account Manager for uh, ABS. We're a 150-year-old uh, marine classification society based in Houston, Texas, with a global reach. We have about 12,000 vessels uh, in classification with us today. Uh, and of uh, U.S. flag uh, certificated and class vessels, we have uh, about an 80% uh, market share. Thank nice you. you. So look, I think, I think the Jones Act is obviously a pretty broad term. Um, I think that the Jones Act covers uh, approximately 40,000 vessels and, and 360 seaports. Um, so I think there's certainly different demand drivers um, across these different vessel classes. But I think perhaps starting with um, kind of the coastal product tanker uh, and ATB market, um, question for Sam, I think we've, we've obviously come a long way um, in terms of, of where the market has gone uh, in the past couple of years. Uh, the market, at least at this point, is looking pretty strong. Um, there's, there's sort of no idle vessels uh, or new builds currently that at least I'm aware of. Um, just curious if you could comment at all around sort of any major changes uh, that you've seen in the way that the, the fleet is deployed um, pr at present sort of compared to kind of pre-COVID. Yeah, so the, the, the biggest change uh, that's occurred in the last couple of years has been the development of a trade for renewable diesel out of the Gulf of Mexico to the West Coast. Uh, renewable diesel is, uh, is not to be confused with biodiesel. It is a drop-in fuel that, um, that effectively has the same chemical construct as, as diesel. Uh, its feedstock is primarily agricultural and, uh, and uh, restaurant waste oils. Uh, the large basin for that feedstock is collected in up and down the river systems in the United States, and so the refinery systems 
uh, that have, or the refinery facilities that have come to produce renewable diesel uh, have uh, largely sprung up uh, in Pad 3 in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, the market for that, on the other hand, is in California, Washington, and Oregon. California has uh, something called the Low Carbon Fuel Standards. It's a, uh, it's a financial incentive for uh, people to replace uh, conventional diesel with uh, lower carbon fuels. They have a measurement system to be able to uh, grade the, uh, call it the environmental friendliness of fuels, and renewable diesel stacks up very well in that uh, grading system. And so there's, uh, you know, the, the subsidies there go up and down, but <clears throat> as recently uh, uh, that I looked, it's like close to $100 uh, uh, a barrel or a ton, $100 a ton uh, of subsidy that you get, and that's on top of federal subsidies that you also get. So it's quite attractive. Uh, that's shifted the tanker trade uh, that conventionally served the, call it Pad 3, into Florida markets, uh, largely to the West Coast. Um, there's probably six to eight vessels right now that are engaged in that trade. That number was zero three years ago. Um, and to put that in context, uh, there's 43 Jones Act tankers, MR tankers of this size, so you take eight uh, or so of those vessels out of the market, uh, or you create a new market for, the, for those eight vessels. That's a, that's a really significant change in terms of demand profile. Uh, the other thing to bear in mind is a, a voyage from Houston to Tampa or Houston to Jacksonville is a seven to ten day round voyage. Uh, a voyage from the Gulf of Mexico loaded with renewable diesel to the west coast of the Panama Canal, uh, assuming no delays, which is not the case these days. That's a 35 or so day round voyage. Um, so you're basically creating with one uh, load of renewable diesel, you're creating three times or three to four times the amount of ton mile demand um, uh, for those ships. So that's been a really, really significant development for us. And I think just following up on the renewable diesel point, I mean, do you feel that that sort of level of, of sort of how many vessels are sort of operating in that trade, is that about right? Or do you see that potentially growing? Or is that largely driven, uh, as you mentioned, by the subsidies? It's, it's largely driven by the subsidies. There is more capacity that's coming online uh, into the latter part of this year and into next year, uh, based in the Gulf of Mexico. So. Uh, it is foreseeable to see uh, more demand for renewable diesel moving to the West Coast. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I think that the market is probably eight to ten vessels in total, uh, and that could be less uh, if there were a similar sort of low carbon fuel standard uh, type laws that would come up on the East Coast of the United States might divert some of that production uh, to the East Coast. So uh, I, I think we're probably at a level where it's pretty stable. That's great. Thank you. So I think, you know, sticking with kind of the demand, uh, the demand side of things, um, you know, I think, I think John and Kirby, sim similar question on sort of the inland side, you know, it, it, you know bar barge utilization um, continuing at least over the, over the, the recent quarters to, to show signs of improvement. Can you talk a bit about sort of what has been the big uh, demand drivers on that side and how that sort of impacted term and spot contract pricing, and then and then similar question just to follow up. I mean, are there any big shifts um, in, in the way the fleet is operating over the past couple of years? Okay, so if you think about uh, where we're at today, the, the U.S. or North American chemical plant and refining complex has a huge advantage from a cost standpoint globally. So refining uh, utilizations remain at high levels even though we have seen a slowdown in the global economy. If you look at the supply side, there are some significant constraints on new vessel supply, both on the inland and the coastal markets. So you add that to the backdrop of the refined products demand. As Sam mentioned, 
you know, some of that is coming out of the renewable and renewable feedstock uh, side of it, but we've seen both spot and term rates pushing higher. We expect that to continue for a while. And the question is if and when somebody's going to start building uh, new equipment. But uh, you're going to have to see uh, quite a big movement in rate to justify new equipment at the concerned, uh, current construction prices. There really hasn't been a, a fundamental shift in the, in the way products are moving on the inland system. It's just demand coming back from the pandemic. Yeah, and I think, I think we're going to get a bit into the supply side um, and, and yard capacity in a second, but just further on the demand side. And, and maybe we can kind of go down the line, um, starting with Keegan, but are, are there anything sort of keeping you up at night? We're obviously, you know, there, there's recessionary headwinds. We're, we're sort of seeing uh, higher interest rates for longer. What, what is sort of preventing you guys from getting sleep, if anything? Keegan, maybe we can start with you. Yeah, uh, good question. I mean, so, so I think there are a number of factors in, uh, in the shipping industry for any particular project to uh, kind of become more feasible. And uh, there has to be a sustainable charter rate for the ship builders to start building new ships. And what we have seen uh, in the Jones Act especially, it's not only the petroleum or the tanker market, but also uh, the high demand for offshore sector, uh, the coastal sector is uniform. And the market is growing. There is more and more need for the vessels to be built. But are there enough uh, enough market and charter it to support that building the new uh, tonnage. I mean, uh, you, you mentioned higher for longer. Uh, of course, the interest rates are uh, going to be for for longer time uh, on, on, on uh, elevated rates. And that is not today uh, where the ship ship builders are or even the ship owners are coming forward to uh, take that kind of risk uh, versus the reward that they have. The good part is uh, the rates are already being elevated, so it's kind of pushing up uh, the market a little bit. And we see that if, uh, with more sustainable basis as the, as the market will evolve in the next year or so, uh, there could be potential case for building. Uh, but having said that, uh, there's limited shipyard capacity in the yards. Uh, so we don't see anything beyond 27, which has a space, especially on the petroleum and tanker side. Uh, but more on the offshore side, and uh, as the wind market is picking up, you have a different kind of tonnage that you require, and those will start to shape up as we, as we move forward in that. So I'll, I'll take a little bit of a different spin on that. Uh, you know, I, I think I think the market uh, situation is covered by Deepak, and, and and everyone who follows this market understands that the conditions have been uh, as strong as they have been uh, in many years. Uh, I, I think the challenges are on the operational side of the business. Uh, this is this is uh, not something that is often talked about, but uh, certainly in the Jones Act U.S. flag market, uh, there is a acute shortage of labor. Uh, it has been there for uh, many years, uh, and it has been, in my opinion, deeply uh, affected by COVID as well as uh, the aging workforce uh, decided to, to sort of rotate out of working, uh, and that, uh, that part of the workforce has not uh, replenished itself as younger people find uh, the lifestyle choices that need to be made for, uh, for choosing to sail, uh, maybe not to their keeping in, in work-from-home environments and that sort of thing. Uh, this is a topic that is uh, is frequently and loudly discussed uh, in Washington and in uh, in industry forums to try and find a way to uh, to stimulate interest in the maritime industry 
uh, and to broaden and deepen uh, the pool of mariners that are available. Uh, this has national security implications, obviously, but it also has fundamental business uh, implications. Um, I'm, I'm looking down the table. I'm sure uh, everyone on this table has had experiences in the last year where they're forced to sail short. Um, this, uh, you know, we, we have on our tankers, we have 22 uh, uh, billets that normally sail on our tankers. That's a little bit higher than this requirements by the U.S. Coast Guard, but uh, we think for a safe manning and, and, and responsible operation of our tankers, 22 is the right number. Uh, I, I'd say over 70% of our ships at some point uh, during this past year have sailed with as many as two to three uh, billets short. Uh, so we were getting right up to the uh, minimum requirements that, that are provided by uh, the Coast Guard at times and having to scramble to try and fill those berths. Um, these ultimately have uh, commercial implications. Uh, if we, uh, I'm sure that those of you who, f who fly have probably come across a situation where you're on a plane, and the and the and the and either the flight crew or the or the uh, the cabin crew uh, time out on their hours. Uh, we have the same situation in the marine industry, um, and no one is uh, is able to work more than 12 hours in a day. You have shifts and watches, so if you're running short and you have people that are doing labor on board and they over whatever, they overwork their hours and they have to go on rest hours and you're down men, you can't work, uh, then the ship is going to go off higher. Uh, and this is a concern that I have uh, as, a, as a commercial concern. Uh, but in the longer term, I think that the, uh, you know, the, there are programs that are building, trying to build out the U.S. Uh, marine industry and get more ships under U.S. flag. Uh, in my view, is the principal constraint to that is not money, it's not shipbuilding capacity, it's people. Yeah, that, that's, that's super interesting. I mean, maybe just for the owner-operators on the panel, is that sort of shortage of, of mariners, is that sort of a theme that you're seeing as well? Absolutely. Uh, I echo uh, Sam's sentiments. Uh, through the pandemic, we did see mariners uh, retiring earlier than, than what was considered the norm. And also, if you look at the maritime academies, uh, during the pandemic, it was tough for them to get their cadets the, the hours they need for their summer term to be able to graduate on time with the license option. So. There was a drain both from the academies and early retirements, but it, it is an ongoing uh, challenge in mariners and the, the training, retention, and development of new mariners is going to be critical moving forward. Yeah, to add to that, uh, uh, also I think as the industrial landscape has been changing and you have a more diversified need for these mariners, uh, looking at the offshore industry and some of the wind market, that uh, some of the projects that are ramping up, uh, that will require even some of the reskilling. Uh, we, we have a tons of expertise in oil and gas that could be transferred to uh, some of the capabilities into the offshore, but these are different kind of projects that will also require a new kind of mariners. And uh, there's a knowledge transfer that needs to happen from some of the players who have already figured it out. Uh, but of course, uh, I would definitely agree with uh, Sam and John that there's a, there's a shortage of mariners in general uh, in the U.S. And uh, that needs to be uh, that needs to be uh, narrowed, uh, and, and with with more and more demand as the sector is ramping up, this this uh, gap will only broaden, and we want to make sure that uh, we, we deploy more and more mariners to uh, get into the entry level and make that more attractive for them to uh, shorten the gap. So I think you know, switching to the supply side of things, um, certainly at least on the product tanker. Um, an ATB side, large ATB side, you know, it seems like there's not any capacity for a yard um, to deliver a new build until probably 2027, uh, sort of at earliest. And I think, 
you know, question for Sam, looking just, looking at what has been the, the large impediment, um, there, there's probably a few factors, but what has been sort of the largest impediment that has sort of prevented uh, that new build ordering, and, and what do you think would need to change um, from either a rate perspective uh, or, or perhaps more macro related that could result in us potentially seeing some new builds? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a difficult question. Um, I, I think we can break it into two, two parts. Uh, for tankers, uh, there are really only two shipyards today in the United States that, can, uh, that have historically built tankers of the size that we would operate. Uh, one is Philly Shipyard uh, in Philadelphia, and the other is uh, General Dynamics uh, NASCO Yard in San Diego. Uh, those yards today uh, are being kept busy with government contracts um, and also some, uh, some offshore uh, uh, vessels that are being constructed, a couple of container ships. Uh, and those yards are, are pretty well full through 2027. NASCO probably longer than that. They're building a series of ships for the Navy. Um, so so you, if you're looking at new capacity, you, probably need to look at ATBs. There are a significantly larger number of yards that can build tugs and barges. Uh, inflationary costs there are, are challenging. Uh, and, and I think that uh, most of the people that operate in the offshore uh, deep water bl uh, or blue water sector of the Jones Act uh, are, um, are looking for longer term contracts from, from end users to be able to uh, justify uh, construction. Um, the other problem with building a tanker, uh, just touch on regulatory issues. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's new regulations that are coming in with the IMO. The, 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 the blue, blue water ships need to comply with those, uh, with those regulations. You have uh, carbon intensity is the one that comes to, to mind most, uh, most importantly. Um, the, 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 if you're building a tanker today for the Jones Act, you want to make it last 30 or 40 years, likely, on your construction, and you look out 30 or 40 years, what's going to be the fuel standard that's going to be, uh, that's going to be uh, uh, the winner in the market? Uh, and, and how do you build an engine today? How do you build a ship with an engine today that's going to be in, able to anticipate that? Uh, and then layer on top of that, uh, if policies to try and uh, address climate change uh, uh, continue to be enforced and developed, uh, it's, it's, it's foreseeable that gasoline demand in particular uh, is likely to decline over the coming two decades. Uh, so you're, you're, you're really looking at a, at a much, much higher, much more elevated obsolescent risk in, in what you build. Uh, and I think that, that, as much as anything, probably is intimidating for people that are looking at building uh, new vessels. I mean, even if you could get a 10-year time charter from an Exxon or someone that wanted to do that, uh, you know, you, you put yourself 10 years out, you still have 20 years to run. You probably have only written down your asset value by 25 or 30 percent. Um, what if there's no demand for that ship? So I, I think that's a concern for, for many people when they look at this problem. And, and then I think, you know, similar question um, there, John, I think on, on the tank barge side, um, could you talk a bit around sort of the yard capacity and what you've been seeing on sort of the new build side? Sure. I think on a yard capacity standpoint, there's not really an issue moving forward. If you look at the, the order book, we expect about a dozen or so new tank barges to be delivered this year. If you add that to the 20 roughly that were delivered last year, that's uh, mainly just replacement capacity. Normally you would see 75 to 100 barges uh, entering the market on an annual basis and you'd see the barge count 
grow, but we're not seeing that. The barge count's stable and, and shrinking slightly. If you look at the cost of a tank barge, it's north of $4 million uh, for a new tank barge today. That's almost double, or more than double than what it was just a couple of years ago. You've got the, the interest rates uh, elevated, tighter uh, lending uh, requirements from the banks. So we expect uh, you know, supply side to stay in check, given, given those two factors. Mm -hmm. Keegan, I think you know from from a, a measure of um, performance and, and vessel compliance. Um, you know, I think looking at detention rates uh, for for various fleets across time spans and geographic regions is sort of certainly one metric. How how, how does the Jones Act? Um, compare with that in that respect relative to the international market? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. I think that there's a, certainly a lot of interest in trying to draw comparisons between the international fleet and the, and the domestic Jones Act fleet and to try to um, sort of create a uh, maybe a, a picture that that's, it, there's some inequalities there. I'd like to maybe draw some, some numbers to everyone's attention and, and I'll, I'll get some inspiration actually from, from Sam Norton. You're, uh, LinkedIn posts are uh, very instructive, and, and I think we all enjoy reading them, and, and they're laced with all kinds of data, which is uh, help, very helpful. Uh, so I was able to draw some uh, detention information from Coast Guard uh, Commercial Vessel Compliance Office from 2022, and everyone, you may or may not be surprised to know that there are about 11,000 vessels from 78 different flags calling at 80,000 port calls just in 2022 domestically. And of that, the Coast Guard was able to carry out about 8,700 port state control exams with 78 detentions. So that's about, let's under a 1% detention rate for foreign flag vessels. For U.S. flag vessels subjected to flag state interventions, uh, there are about 560 uh, subchapter I uh, cargo vessels operating internationally, both domestically and internationally. There were 1,100 inspections carried out and about 12 detentions. So that is on par with uh, just about 1% of uh, overall inspections. So I think that pound for pound, the U.S. fleet is, uh, is, is measuring up really, really cleanly with, um, with the international fleet. Yeah, qu quantifying that, I think, really puts it into, uh, into perspective there. I think certainly one of, the, one, one of the things that, at least to me, is quite interesting when you compare uh, Jones Act and, and, and international, internationally traded vessels is sort of useful life. Um, just given, given the strength of the market um, and, and the lack of, of new supply, maybe a question for Sam. Do, do, you, do you anticipate seeing this sort of existing fleet trading for longer, uh, you know, compared to what is typical? Or do you feel that, you know, and, and a, a question I'll ask shortly thereafter is more about sort of fuel efficiencies and new technologies, but how does that weigh in compared to the existing fleet today? So I don't know what most people think uh, the useful economic life of a Jones Act uh, vessel would be. Um, you know, internationally it tends to be 20 to 25 years. Uh, I think that the Jones Act assets have historically traded longer than that. Uh, I believe, for many of the reasons that I mentioned earlier about uh, you know what, what type of replacement choice do you make if you if you go and build new equipment, I think that compels the incumbent operators to look very hard at. Uh, how to extend the uh, useful life of their vessels, um, making sure that the maintenance is being done, that you're, you're keeping up with uh, all of the things that need to be done to extend that life. Uh, I certainly see that uh, amongst uh, our competitorships. 
Um, you know, we have international inspectors that come on board to, to, to look at our ships from time to time. Uh, they're shocked to see we have, you know, a 20 or 20-plus-year-old 20 vessel. Uh, they think it's a brand-new vessel. So uh, I, I think that that's a really important part of the planning uh, for companies like mine in terms of trying to think about how do we keep uh, our business moving in a in a changing envir environmental uh, or changing environmental environment and a changing regulatory environment, um, and and how best to achieve that? Uh, certainly, we and I'll, I'll address your second question. We as a company are are very mindful of uh, CII requirements. Uh, those reduce the carbon emissions that are allowable by a vessel against the 2008 uh, benchmark. Uh, by 2 percent per annum as we go forward. So we, we need to be thinking 10 years from now, how are we, if we're going to keep the same vessels on the water, how are we going to be able to perform the same type of services that we're performing today with a 20 percent less footprint from a carbon, uh, carbon footprint point of view? Uh, and that's, uh, that's a big driver of the type of investment decisions that we're looking at today um, uh, to try and meet those goals. So, uh, yes, I think ships will last longer in the Jones Act. Uh, and I think more and more capital investment will need to be made into need to be made into those existing ships uh, in order to get them to extended life uh, at an acceptable uh, physical condition, but also to meet new regulatory requirements. And Keegan, from a, from a class perspective, um, just any thoughts around sort of useful lives and, and what you're seeing on that front? Sure. I mean, I think that uh, you know, I'd like to echo Sam's uh, uh, comments around sort of. Maybe longer than than a, a sort of international life uh, from a Jones Act perspective, and I think a lot of that comes down to the U.S. Uh, operator's willingness to embrace new technology, right, and to be able to either deploy that on new builds or uh, through conversions and, and retrofits. Uh, I mean, I think you know we've seen some public press releases recently with uh, you know Kirby's uh, installation of battery-powered uh, uh, hybrid technology, uh, you know Crowley leaning in on. Um, the E-Wolf tug and other other types of hybrid electric type of projects. Uh, you know, I'm sure uh, OSG has some uh, some things in the pipeline as well that may be uh, uh, broadcast later on. But I think that the uh, those conversions and those ability to kind of take a, a valuable hull and uh, and and maybe pivot that a little bit has uh, a position the U.S. operators quite well, and we're excited to support that. That's a that's a nice segue. Um, but maybe before I, I ask um, Kirby and Crowley, Sam touched on it already, but. From a class perspective, Keegan, what, what are you seeing Jones Act uh, owners, operators doing from a alternative fuel electrification perspective, um, you know, relative and, and when compared to the international market? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm proud to say that, you know, the U.S. operators have begun to lean, uh, have leaned into LNG and alternative fuels, even, you know, uh, predating our, our current focus on, on CII and carbon efficiency. Uh, I mean, there have been operators, you know, such as Crowley and Tote and Matson and Pesha, who have all leaned into LNG as a uh, as an alternative fuel, and are you know beginning to explore that process and what that looks like for their uh, for their fleets. Um, and I think that. Uh, for larger vessels or even smaller, more regional vessels, the use of electrification and hybrid technology uh, will only continue to grow. Um, you know, the U.S. government has been able to sort of help uh, uh, explore some of those demonstration projects through MARAD, uh, CARB grants, and also DOE uh, type of funding, which has been very exciting. So I think, um, you, you know, certainly um, as it relates to uh, these types of investments from, from both um, both the Crowley and, and the Kirby perspective. Can you talk a bit around what kind of um, 
investment you're making in terms of you know, electrifying or alternative fuels on your existing fleet? Absolutely. Uh, so, so a number of things here. One is when we look at uh, the overall uh, meeting the net zero target by 2050 and even the short-term goal, uh, the greenhouse gas uh, from IMO uh, that they've reset this year uh, from 20% to 20%. Uh, we strongly believe that it's not going to be one unified strategy that will work for everyone uh, globally. Uh, whatever will work for other part of the world may not work here in this region. So it's going to be very... Uh, regionally differentiated strategy, uh, depending upon what is available and what are the number of options and how these tonnage will get uh, more transition to the alternate fuel stage. And even in the same region, we, we believe that there'll be number of things that needs to happen together. Uh, it's not only that if somebody is going electrical route, then everything going to be electrical. If somebody is going LNG route or methanol route or, or some other options, it will be a combination of things that needs to happen to get to that target. And uh, at Crowley, uh, we, we appreciate uh, all that is happening in, from a technology advancement to get us there. Uh, there are a number of regulatory environment more internationally, but also you know, locally. Uh, carb regulations of the commercial hovercraft is one. Uh, and there are a number of things that, that uh, we are exploring. Uh, so Evolve is one of the uh, first one that we, we came out as an all-electric tug, uh, which is going to be in operation uh, early next year. Uh, we, are, we are exploring technologies like carbon capture, uh, hydrogen, uh, post-emission, post, post uh, post-engine or emission, you kind of capture some of the, uh, some of the carbon uh, with some of the latest technologies. And then uh, it's not only just about the fuel or, or uh, looking at the emissions uh, from the engine perspective. There are a number of other things that needs to happen. The hull form design, uh, the machinery design, the repowering of engines, uh, anti-fouling paints. Uh, the, the, the more emission, more, more cleaner uh, optimization, if you will. So the, it's a combination of number of things that, that will help us to get that net zero goal. And there are a number of investments that Crowley is exploring both organically and non-organically. We have made uh, some small investment in uh, seed investment in some of these companies to innovate uh, better technologies, uh, carbon rich and ZI, which is zero emission industries, uh, looking at hydrogen uh, capabilities is uh, two of them. Uh, so, so all in all, I think it's not going to be one single, singular strategy that will work uh, for everyone. There'll be a combination, and those strategies will be very regionalized. And as uh, Keegan mentioned, uh, I think Crowley has uh, gone the LNG route five years back where we had the Conros, uh, the, the vessels which are being traded in Puerto Rico and Jacksonville. Uh, that's a good segue on how you want to transition. Uh, so it's going to be a transitional strategy, and then... Uh, once you get there, then you start to explore other options uh, depending upon uh, what is scalable and what is commercially viable. So a number of things happening there. John, any comments on that front? Sure. At, at Kirby, if, if you look at our coastal fleet, we started several years ago with uh, Tier 4 engines in our, in our fleet, about 25 percent, uh, actually a little more of our fleet run Tier 4 engines. They produce uh, lower emissions and are more fuel efficient. We just uh, launched our Green Diamond, our diesel electric tug in Houston that has a, a couple of uh, generators that produce uh, 1,100 kilowatts of, of power to run a, a hybrid drive. We also have a 1,200 kilowatt battery system on, on the tug. Now that, that works in, in some uh, applications. There are some challenges around uh, infrastructure and distribution for alternative fuels. We, we do burn a lot of uh, Biodiesel, B20 blends, uh, and renewable diesel in our fleet. 
I think we'll burn more of that as, it, as those uh, products are more readily available in the market. But we are looking at those things. Uh, our ambition is to create a, a green corridor with some of the diesel electric tugs where it makes sense. In the shorter runs, the fleeting run around the harbor, those sort of things, it's easier to uh, recharge and have the charging stations and the infrastructure we need to, to operate efficiently. Thank you. So this is, of course, a, a capital link conference. Um, after all, we've got two public uh, businesses here on the panel. Um, Sam, John, maybe you could, you could comment a bit around how you're allocating capital um, in this environment. Um, so anyone that listens to, to what we've said for the last couple of years, there's, there's really three, three things that we think about with capital allocation. I think it's the most important thing that uh, the board and the executive management team needs to, to the most important decision that we need to take on a on a day-to-day -day basis is how how do we deploy our capital and how do we how do we think about a sustainable business and how do we address the other constituents that we have uh, in our business uh, shareholders obviously lenders uh, other other capital providers but even even labor and and and, and the like um, where we've we've gone uh, in recent uh, uh, recent months, uh, quarters, I guess, um, uh, we've been uh, reacquiring sh our own shares through, uh, through market uh, transactions. Um, we think that has been the most compelling uh, use of our capital. Uh, probably every CEO says that their stock price is undervalued, <laughs> but we think our stock price is undervalued. And, uh, and uh, you know, certainly when we look at, uh, at the kinds of returns that we think we get cash on cash returns for, for making that kind of investment, uh, that's, that's proven to be a, 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 an attractive op option for us. Um, I also think uh, ship owners or ship, uh, ship owning companies uh, recognize that during mar our, our markets are always going to be cyclical. Um, I, I wish I knew uh, how to make uh, peak cycles last forever, but they generally never do. Uh, so uh, deleveraging uh, the business or deleveraging our business during periods of uh, of higher cash flow generation is also uh, something that uh, that we think is really important to do. Um, you know, for us right now, we were fortunate we had quite a bit of debt that we put on at fixed rates uh, back in 2021. So, uh, for much of our debt, we're actually getting positive carry on our debt right now. Uh, we do have significant cash balances. Uh, so, so the incentive to uh, prepay debt or to deleverage through uh, through early retirement of debt uh, is not that strong right now. So that has featured less. Uh, but I think as we go forward, that, that still is a, 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 a constant topic of discussion. Um, where, where do we want our leverage to sit and, and where's the best way for us to be able to reduce leverage if we can do that? Uh, and, and really that probably dovetails into the third option, which is to uh, acquire accretive assets um, that, that complement the existing businesses that we have. Uh, and um, you know that's something that we're looking at uh, obviously all the time, uh, but I think we're gonna have some developments on that front uh, in the near term that we can, that we can speak about publicly. Um, and likely those assets will be, require, uh, will be acquired without additional debt. So we, we, you know, we can achieve deleveraging uh, 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 through means other than simply paying down debt just by adding to cash flow uh, without taking on additional debt. So at, at Kirby, we've always been very disciplined in the way we deploy capital. And in the current uh, interest rate environment, and you look at the, the cost of debt today, 
you know, you really sharpen your pencil and, and look at uh, opportunities, whether that be new build or acquisitions. And, and frankly, uh, looking at the economics, we've walked away from a couple of opportunities because it just didn't make sense, didn't uh, deliver a return uh, north of uh, our hurdle rate. And uh, we'll, we'll continue to be very disciplined in the shorter term, you know, with, with the lack of a, a compelling uh, investment uh, opportunity out there. The, the bulk of our free cash flow will go back to our shareholders through uh, share repurchases. Thank you. I think we're at the two-minute warning here, but I, I think it wouldn't really be a Jones Act panel um, unless the topic uh, of offshore wind came up. Um, Deepak, maybe, maybe starting with you, can you touch uh, a bit on sort of what Crowley is doing to, to sort of play a role within the U.S. offshore wind sector? Sure. So I think offshore wind is an interesting sector and it's evolving. And to meet 30 by 30 target, 30 gigawatts by 2030, there's a strong statutory support. There's a strong industry support. There's a strong administrative support on how the Jones Act can, Jones Act vessels can be part of that offshore wind industry. Uh, there are a number of things that are happening. Uh, one is on the supply chain side. Of course, the number of vessels and the kind of vessels that the offshore wind uh, farms will, will, will probably demand are not existing today. Whether it's you know, the turbine installation vessels or whether it's the SOVs or the service operation vessels or the CTVs, those vessels will uh, be required in order to ramp up the whole uh, offshore wind farm uh, industry. And the second is uh, because of the macro environment, uh, there are projects which are sliding to the right or maybe renegotiated for a better rate. So there, there's, a, there's another uh, way of looking at it. So as, you know, higher for longer, uh, you mentioned, uh, Andrew, and uh, the interest rate environment and the, and the overall uh, development cost that is required is kind of pushing the market to the right. Uh, however, there's a strong commitment, uh, both from the administration as well as uh, from the industry players to continue uh, marching towards that. There are a number of vessels under construction, not the wind installation vessels. That's the only one uh, that that's, that Dominion is uh, coming up with uh, next year or so. Uh, but there are other kind of support vessels, uh, including the feed ring operations and, and some of the support vessels that we will need. And uh, that, will, that will pave uh, new jobs. Uh, I think the industry is uh, going to have 55,000 more jobs uh, from the offshore wind overall as estimated and uh, more vessels, uh, stronger Jones Act. Uh, so I think those are all positive news and uh, definitely I think uh, there's a strong uh, and, and a favorable environment for, for people to uh, get into uh, kind of more upfront and make sure that they're part of the bigger picture uh, both, from, uh, both from offshore wind development but also creating more jobs. Um, fi final one here, maybe for, for John and for Keegan. We, we've, we've obviously seen, as Deepak alluded to, um, you know, a lot of projects on the U.S. offshore wind side being kind of pushed sideways. Are you seeing from both the class perspective as well as obviously Kirby is playing a role within U.S. offshore wind as well, is this sort of changing the way you are sort of approaching the sector? And maybe from a class perspective, how are you seeing uh, owners sort of changing the way that they're they're taking an approach towards this sector. Sure, I guess I'll I'll start with that one. Um, so of course, you know, as energy security in the U.S. continues to be very very important front and center, you know, offshore renewables will be a part of that energy mix, uh, and that's not going away anytime soon. Even though there have certainly been maybe a few challenges right uh, this summer and kind of earlier in this year around some of those project timelines. 
Um, but you know, as those costs continue to go up with certain projects, um, I think there's more and more focus on being innovative, right, with existing assets and maybe kind of using, uh, um, let's just say, some some legacy types of uh, types of vessels and repurposing them and maybe putting them to to to, to work in in maybe a slightly different capacity. And that's uh, we're starting to kind of see that a little bit more. And folks are coming forward with designs and with uh, plans uh, for vessels that are uh, uh, unique and novel, right, and uh, kind of deploying certain bits of new technology to to breathe new life, right, if you will, into into some of these assets. And that's that's been really exciting to kind of work with those designers and then certainly uh, with, with class and flag on that. John, any final comments? So from Kirby's perspective, you know, it really hasn't changed with, with offshore wind. We're going to focus on opportunities that complement our core business. We're not interested in deviating far from our core business. If you think about the wind and technology obsolescence and the way they continue to scale up the turbines, you would obviously need commercial commitment that covers the, the life of the asset. Think about a 20-year, 25-year life vessel against uh, one commercial opportunity or one project that just doesn't work, doesn't make sense. There's a lot of headwinds now, a lot of projects sliding to the right, and we certainly uh, do not want to be uh, a market bleeder on that front. So we're you know, specialize in operating and, and our vessel ops are our expertise, ATBs and that application. So if we can leverage that platform in offshore wind, we'll certainly look to do that. But again, it has to make commercial sense. It's got to have the right uh, commercial term behind it. I think we're out of time, but thank you to our panelists. Really appreciate the discussion. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs>